There we are. Now, no, no, no. Today, I'm going to talk to Survive the Jive, Mr. Thomas Rosso. And I wanted to ask him about the West Country where he lives, because I have been there. I have some connection there. And I love it myself. And he knows a good bit about it. And the pagan sites, I was going to ask him about broadly about the paganism there and stuff, but he was telling me, he quickly elucidated the fact that there's a broad range of different, almost, I won't say competing paganisms, but the history of it was originally Celtic, and then there was Saxon paganism, and then Viking invasion, so I thought I would ask him about all these things, because of course he knows a good bit about it. Um, so yes, uh, Thomas, thanks for coming on. Thank you very so, much for having me, it's a pleasure, I'm a big fan of your uh your very aesthetic posts. I've been w watching them since the, the days before it was called a rest, uh, <laughs> press and the, the traditional art days was always, uh, entertaining on the, on the feed. And, uh, the okay. addition of the occasional, uh, um, bikini babe is welcome in my view, <laughs> as, well <laughs> as, the, as well as conventionally beautiful art as well. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Yes. Yes. I remember you back in the day on Facebook, you'd be there and we'd, been having a chat about uh, whatever paganism or zeppelins or something. Long time but, ago. Uh, yeah, a long time ago. I guess I've been doing it for a while. It's, it started out as a, it starts well. It starts and then it's like a weird addiction where you have to. Oh, I better post another image. And, but it is a good way to um, grow on social media if you're trying to. I only. I mean, I started doing it to peddle my books, like we all are doing on social media. We're trying to peddle something in a way, or like peddle our ideas at least. And it's always been effective, in my opinion, to use the old imagery because I was my background's in art, so it is good, I think. But and I've always uh, followed your your stuff as well. I've always been a fan, and we came close to meeting up a couple times, so we failed at doing so. But fate did not um, allow it. <laughs> but yeah, so about so in the West Country, by the West Country, we mean Cornwall, Devon, and Somerset. And you're a Devonshire man, a proud Devonshire man, I, I should add. Well, yeah, uh, I, I live in Devon, but I wasn't raised in Devon. And also I should say that um, the West Country also includes Dorset, which right, is the sorry. county. I, I, I don't know much about Dorset. But, uh, yeah, Cornwall, Devon and Somerset are the ones that I know more about. But yeah, in general, that's, uh, they're all quite similar in some respects. But also, they all have their own unique histories, too. Well, okay. So, what between the three of those the major ones, and we'll call them the major ones. Is there what's the is there large distinction, like historically or today? Um, well, there has been. I mean, the most clearly distinct historically has been Cornwall because it was, uh, it did, at one stage have a completely different language in it, um, but all of the Western Peninsula was once the kingdom kingdom of Donmonia. Donmonia was a kingdom that predates the Romans uh, and then continue, that name was still in place when the Romans left uh, a Celtic kingdom. And it's that kingdom that King is alleged that King Arthur had his seat there uh, in what's now Tintazel in Northern Cornwall. Um, but it didn't just, it wasn't just Cornwall, it was Devon and parts of Somerset. Uh, Somerset is, I mean, in more recent history, uh, like, you know, Cornwall has been a, an impoverished sort of tin mining area, but then Plymouth, uh, the only big, big cities in the West Country were, Devon had two, both on the South Coast, as Exeter, which had a medieval cathedral, and Plymouth, which is basically like the starting point for the United States of America. It's where the Mayflower set off. It's where 
you know, it's where all the Western direction of, of like um, traffic was headed out. And uh, yeah. Somerset, of course, has Bristol, which is a major port town as well. And it was a big slave slave trading city. So there were wealthy cities in Devon and Cornwall, but there weren't really wealthy cities. Uh, there were wealthy cities in Devon and Somerset, but not really in Cornwall. But the, And after the mining pact in Cornwall became quite an impoverished area. And nowadays Cornwall is known, it's kind of become the holiday coastal region of, of, of Britain, yeah. uh, which is not always to the benefit of the natives who are now sort of outnumbered by people from other parts of the country who moved there uh, to retire or just have holiday homes and whatever. Mm -hmm. And that's not so much the case in Devon. It's really Cornwall. It's very much the case in Devon too, but Devon's yeah. much bigger. Devon's the second biggest county in the whole of Britain after Yorkshire. Uh, so there's a lot more room here. Um, and actually, North Devon is the least populated region of the UK. Uh, of of no of of England, sorry, not the UK. The Highlands is much less populated. The Highlands of Scotland, but North Devon is the least populous area of England, uh, right. which is nice. <laughs> and uh, also, it's the mo the least diverse part of England as well. It's the it's more than ninety nine percent indigenous. Right. So, uh, hmm. but yeah, but that that so you're, in the, you're in the you're in the south south part, aren't you? Are you in the north part? Are you in the south part? No, I'm in I'm I'm in the northern part of Devon. Oh, you are. The southern oh, sorry, part has the cities. There's no cities in the northern part of Devon. Both oh. of the, the big cities of Devon are in the south, uh, Exeter and Plymouth, and um, right. Yeah they're, uh, yeah, they're 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 more like Cornwall and <laughs> South, and it's more. Uh, there was a railway that was Victorian railway. Brunel, the famous engineer, got this railway sort of going all the way through the south right. of Devon and into Cornwall. Isambard Kingdom Brunel. Yeah, yeah most a, amazing name. In the, yeah, he was ever. a real uh, remarkable man. But you yeah. know, not everyone liked that way that that the country was opened up anyway now that railway system is now this it's not there anymore but um that people drive everywhere but uh yeah. yeah i suppose you're more interested in the ancient history of cornwall i suppose i should talk more about that than this uh modern stuff well, or devon as well I, I like what you're saying totally uh, reminds me of my my relatives in cornwall um just because they would be when you say it's like a insular place or at least it was i mean more so but even even now like if i talk to my uncle he he would even talk about a devonshire man like it's some kind of foreigner and what's he doing mm. here? yeah <laughs> it's interesting because the, the uh the the, the welcome trust funded study the people of the british isles well they did a study and they found that like while you know probably due to the mass upheavals of people during the industrial revolution the majority of england is all one genetic sort of group even up to, mm -hmm. not even there's not even a distinction between the north and south which are very culturally distinct the north and south of england is the biggest cultural distinction in uh southern britain um you know in and uh but there isn't a, a big genetic difference but devon is distinct from the rest of england and Cornwall is distinct from Devon. And the boundary between Cornwall and Devon genetically is almost exactly the county boundary, which is the River Tamar. And that's an ancient sort of county boundary, which is really interesting uh, yeah. that, that that should be preserved. But although this, this, test, this test was done only on fat people who said all four of their grandparents were born locally. 
So yeah. if you did a test in Cornwall of just random people, you wouldn't get that because, as I said, Cornwall is now mainly populated by what they call incomers, uh, yeah. which in, in distinction to emets, the Cornish call, the, the, the call tourist emets. And then all the people who buy homes there move in. They're called incomers. Um, right. Whereas in Devon, they call the, the tourists grockles. Uh, <laughs> and, they, <laughs> and, they, and they both hate each other in a, in a sort of half joking way. And they make like the tradition of the the traditional food of the West Country is this is the cream tea, which it doesn't mean tea with cream in it, uh, as Americans might assume. It actually means um, uh, a scone, uh, a cup of tea and a scone. And a scone is essentially the same thing as what Americans call a biscuit, except that it's not served with gravy. It's served with jam and a very thick kind of cream. Clotted cream, yeah. Between Cornwall and Devon, the only difference between them is that one puts the cream on first and the other puts the jam on first. And this is such an important issue to them that they walk around with, they have it on their cars, bumper stickers that say cream first and stuff like that, or jam first. And they get really they get really serious about it. That uh, oh, it, it's a very funny uh, rivalry between the two, but that obviously must go back quite a long way. I mean, the, the, I wrote about this in my blog, the the Devon was Celtic, of course. Domnonia was a Celtic kingdom, and it became somehow Devon in the Anglo-Saxon times. The Anglo-Saxons invaded in the east, and they were pagan at the time, and they moved gradually into the west, and the last part of England they got to was Devon. Um, so by that time, they were, the Anglo-Saxons were mostly Christian by the time they got here. So then right. some people make claims that Devon is therefore the most consistently Christian, Exeter's the most consistently Christian city in all of England, because it was populated by Christian Celts in the Roman right. time. And then they claimed the Anglo-Saxons came and they were Christian by that time too. So there was no pagan intervention. So it's been consistent Christian area. That's what the Christians right. like to came. But I have demonstrated there were Celtic pagans in, even Celtic pagans in Devon yeah. at the time of the Anglo-Saxon invasion because the Welsh yeah. uh, launched a mission into North Devon at least. Uh, so that, And then there were also some before the Anglo-Saxons had properly settled in Devon, there had been military invasions of Anglo-Saxons and activities, including by pagan kings, Anglo-Saxon kings. So there were both Celtic and Anglo-Saxon pagans in Devon. Uh, so it's not true that there was a consistent... I mean, there might be a consistent population of Christians going right back to Roman times in Devon, but there were yeah. also pagans coming in and the Vikings so there, came here. There was a period with, with Celtic and Saxon kings at the same time. Is that what you said? Saxon pagans at the same time. Um, I don't, I, I, it's possible. It's what I'm saying is it's possible. I can't be certain that there's no record of a Celtic pagan meeting an Anglo-Saxon pagan anywhere in England oh, because okay. it was, there were the Celtic, at the time of the Anglo-Saxon invasion, Celtic pagans were limited to some parts of the West. And by the time the Anglo-Saxons made it to the West, they were mostly Christian. So there was, there's only a brief period when they could have been an Anglo-Saxon pagan and a, Christ, a Celtic pagan meeting, but it's possible it would have happened in Devon. Um, but I, and by that, I exclude Gaelic pagans. I think up in like the Northern Ireland, Northern, the Northern Isles of Scotland, there were persistent Gaelic pagans for longer. Right. But I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about on the big island of Great Britain itself, the main, the main island. Um, but uh, yeah, one Exeter is a good record of this because there was Anglo-Saxons come in and there would have been like a, a dual culture society in early Devon where there were two languages spoken, like the 
the, uh, uh, something ancestral to Cornish or similar to Cornish. It was before Cornish existed because before Cornwall, it was a separate place. Um, and uh, Anglo-Saxon were spoken side by side in the same city. And that must have gone on for about 200 years until uh, an Anglo-Saxon king decided uh, he didn't want his Celts there anymore and he banished them all. And um, most of them probably just went into Cornwall. So a lot of the Cornish people would, are not the, are the people who got pushed further and further out to the west of the right. of England uh, and um, right. or their ancestors were. So their ancestors so there, and there, to this day, Devon likes to take the title of we were the first Christians and Cornwall is where all the pagan hippies like to go. Is, uh, is, that, well, is that true? Um, <laughs> well, it's tr those are both true things, uh, but they're not. Um, the, the Cornwall was a Christian. Was Christian. It should be Cornwall has an ancient Christian heritage too. The yes. West Country, in its entirety, including Somerset, has this association with modern pagans, neo pagans, a lot. Yeah. And yeah. Um, that includes Cornwall, Devon, and Somerset. And one of the most important places of these is the town of Glastonbury in um, Somerset, which right. is. If you like like esoteric uh, like literature, magical occult stuff, neo pagans, any of that, it's a great town to go to because it's just covered in bookshops selling like Alistair Crowley this or whatever. You know, like you can buy yeah. Guanon books. You can find all kinds of rare books on paganism and stuff. Uh, and that's because it's like pop and all the pubs are called like the, the the Wicked Wizard or whatever. You know, everything's like like themed on this whole thing. Yeah. And there's even this mad cult of a goddess. It's like this modern feminist cult that they made where they worship yeah. periods or something weird. Oh, but it's all made up because there is no evidence of any ancient Celtic or Anglo-Saxon pagan cult site at Glastonbury. And I don't know why Glastonbury became like the capital of paganism because it's got like, not, it's, what it is, is a really ancient site of Christianity. Uh, and, in, and it has evidence of very early Christianity in it. And it, for that reason, it's really important in the Arthurian myths, I think. And I think it's the connection to Arthur that led to like the counterculture movie, uh, countercultural movement in the 1960s and the hippies loving Glastonbury. And um, yeah. they yeah. therefore attached it to this like stuff that has literally no real attachment to. And similar thing happened in Devon and Cornwall. Um, where people like attach it to like, oh, you know, there was ancient energy, there's special energies if you go onto the ground in Cornwall or something. Yeah, like. that kind we of, make up yeah. Um, yeah, that's just, yeah. that is modern hippie stuff. Yeah. So let me, just ask you about, yeah. let me just ask you about King Arthur just before I lose it. Cause I wanted to ask you before, cause I don't know what the current, uh, you know, academic uh, look view is on exactly who or what he was. So he was a pagan, was he even a king, like a pagan chieftain? And well, you even mentioned Tintagel there. I, I assume Tintagel was just, the locals just made that up to say this is the seat of, of King Arthur. Is there some evidence that that actually was the case? Hmm. Well, I studied Arthurian literature in Middle English, but okay. the idea that Arthur is a real person is not widely agreed upon. There are many who say he was and many who say he wasn't. And those who say he was uh, argue over who, who he was. So I don't, I'm not one of the people who's particularly interested in whether there really was a King Arthur. Okay. Uh, King Arthur was a really, really, really important, not a uh, literary figure, not just in England, but all across Western Europe, like Germany, France, everywhere. He was like 
the Star Wars of its day. It was like, or whatever, I don't know, whatever people like now. That's what he was like, really, really popular in all like, um, you know, the, the, the king's courts. And France was like the, the capital of Europe in a way. France was really central. And they, their literature was actually more important for the development of Arthurian myth than probably the Welsh or the English was. So mm. that's telling. Uh, and, yeah. um, and, you know, it's all got nothing. To, it's all impossible to be true. Most of the important Arthurian stories it can't be true because he's like the king of Iceland before the Vikings. Had, he's set in like the fifth century, and he goes, he's like meant to be king of Norway and Iceland or whatever. Like it's, uh, it's like, yeah, the, real, it's the guy, guy is set in the Dark Ages at the time the, the Saxons are invading, and he's supposed to be a Christian, a Christian, yeah. not a pagan, a Christian Celt who was king. And of course, there's places in Scotland that say he was here, and places in you know tourism everywhere says King Arthur was here or there. But Tintagel yeah. really was a the seat of a royal seat of Domnonia. Okay. So even though Arthur didn't exist, it really was a royal, you know, a center like of Domnonia, the kingdom. Okay. So, um, right. and, and Arthur, if he existed, was there. But what's important to remember is that we have Roman accounts of the Celtic heroes uh, who were like, you know, like Boudicca or Caractacus uh, who resisted Rome or whatever. And we mm-hmm. have Welsh accounts of like the kinds of heroes after who resisted the Saxons, like um, Vortigern or uh, um, anyway, uh, and his the, the daughter Rowena, who you know, these semi mythical stories about Hengist and Horsa, and Hengist wanted to marry the Celtic chief's daughter Rowena and everything. Uh, so we have these, and then we have also like archaeological evidence of coins of like different Celtic leaders, and we have. Like inscriptions, like on Exmoor, I put in my one of my films. There's an inscription of um, a Celtic inscription in Devon, or, or on a stone of a, of a Celt living in Devon before the Devons were evicted from uh, before the Celts were evicted from Devon, and he claims descent from Caractacus, and that's hundreds of years after Caractacus died. So Caractacus is a real hero who we know about. The Celts was talking about him hundreds of years after he died. The Romans were talking about him when he was alive. Uh, none of them mention Arthur. None of these people mention Arthur, like, so, like, or he wasn't, a, if he was a real king, he wasn't a big deal, like, until mm. much later. He became, yeah. like, um, a bigger deal, especially among the Welsh, it seems. So it, it, it does seem strange that he's being connected to Scotland or Cornwall, where, if he mm. was Welsh. But anyway, I yeah. don't know enough to say whether he was real or not. Uh, right. I've made a video where I talked about why I'm not really interested in whether he was real or not. What I'm interested <laughs> in him is he's like the archetype of a hero. And, right. and the, in the literature, Arthurian literature is nothing, even if, if he was real, Arthurian literature has got nothing to do with the real guy. It's to do with something completely different, which is like high medieval ideas of what the ideal king is supposed to be like, what the ideal court is supposed to be like, what the ideal knight is supposed to be like, and how what the ideal society is and how people ought to be and it's it's really interesting with all the mystical grail stuff like Julius Evola wrote about that and his mystery of the grail. That stuff's yeah. really interesting to me, but I'm not that yeah. interested in whether he was real. Yeah. I did read Mort de Arthur. Did you ever read that? I, it's yeah, yeah. Heavy going, I studied yeah. that in, in Middle English. Oh, you would have, yeah. But I, I just remember there was like incredibly harsh things he would do that he wouldn't uh, don't don't make it into the modern versions of the of the tale, like when he found out that his son was born of his sister. What was the son's name? The evil guy. Morgan, 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 yeah, Morgan, his name means Mar- is related to the animal and Martin, 
you know, like pine martins and things. Yeah, I All think right. his name derives from that animal. Right. Um, I, yeah, but I, I just remember he. Um, in the book, his solution is to go out and kill all the firstborn kids in the land. He put them on a boat and sailed them out onto a lake so they starved to death or something. And that's King Arthur. Mm -hmm. the, <laughs> yeah. You know, as yeah well that's as, like, biblical as well. You know, it's, it, he is meant to be the ideal. He's a Christian. And, and the stories are Christian. So if it's a precedent of, you know, biblical stuff. Oh, that's the Egyptians, isn't it? So maybe it's not so great. But Oh, is that um, based on Egyptian? I didn't even know that. Is There's a, an older story about that happening, is there? A king who did that? Well, it's in the Bible. The, the, the Pharaoh tries to oh, kill... killing the firstborns, yeah. But I, yeah, I thought you yeah, specifically yeah. putting them on a boat in the... No, no, whatever, not yeah. that specifically. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's really interesting, some of the stuff in there. Some of the stories in Arthurian literature have parallels in stories in other parts of the world, which indicates that the stories are old and that mm -hmm. they don't necessarily originate in Britain. Uh, someone wrote a book claiming that a lot of the myths, and I don't, I've not read the book and I don't support it, but he look, notices the similarities between stories in the Nart sagas from the Caucasus, and therefore claims that the Scythian, they're, they're Scythian in origin and that Scythians brought them to the British Isles, but there's no evidence of that. So I don't go for that. But, uh, but there are definitely par mythic, mythic parallels in other parts of the world with, um, uh, with the, the Arthurian things, and it could be just their perennial Indo-European myths. Uh, but the same thing is even in the later Robin Hood stories. You can see parallels in the Robin Hood stories from high middle age, uh, from late Middle Ages that were um, that are the same stories are in ancient Indian literature. You know, like uh, the, the contest with the guy, the boat, the, the archery contest with the guy in disguise. That's like uh, that's in the uh, Indian myth as well. Right. I didn't know that. I didn't. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. So that's it's like Robin Hood will be real. I don't care. It's more. I'm more interested in myth than in the, in that sense. What what was the significance of the myth historically, rather than what was the historic significance of the myth? Yeah, and it is fascinating, and it's fascinating how they all get mixed up and changed around, like the way that the old pagan sites get sort of Christianized, you know, like it like it or not, and the way, like you say, Glastonbury. Which was a sort of Christian site gets becomes suddenly more pagan, neo pagan. Yeah. How things switch around and get influence each other and then switch back again, which is normal cultural evolution, I guess. I, I think that always happened, but it is yeah, that's true. How it goes. Yeah. But your so your specialty really is is your do you specialize? Would you say in in Anglo-Saxon paganism? Is that it? well? I mean, my my in terms of my like formal qualifications, definitely um, because that's the only area I studied. Uh, I mean, I studied like Germanic. Like Anglo-Saxon and Norse mytho mythology and stuff, and a bit of Arthurian literature um, right. at uni. But then, uh, since then, my studies have been more. I use that as a stepping-off point to try and understand myths more generally in the Indo-European world. Um, I couldn't say that I was. I mean, I obviously know more about the Germanic myths than I do about Celtic or Indian. But I try to understand. A bit about Celtic or Indian or Iranic or um, Roman and Greek, especially yeah. to help me understand Germanic, because I want to understand Germanic in the context, Germanic myths in the context of the more ancient Indo-European ones and how they're related. Right, and you, but you do so as a believer, right? Uh, yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so I'm perennialist, so I believe in. Um, I believe in like the validity of the the traditional uh, religions, if you want to say that word, or cust the traditions or mm -hmm. belief systems of 
other peoples as well. So not that like the Germanic religion is just the only one that happens to be correct, but they all they all have uh, they all are true in the sense that they reach towards the same thing. They, I, I basically what Celsus was writing in his the true word, the true philosophy, uh, is not that different to what the the you know the traditionalists, perennialists came up with in the early twentieth century. Um, yeah. But uh, I prefer the the ancient view of it, the ancient Platonic view, a bit because um, it's not so focused on Islam. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I'm not against Islam, but I just think that they all, they all are, a, the, the traditionalists were a bit too much, too heavy on Islam uh, too, and too focused on Vedanta uh, in the Indian tradition and like too critical of Western, like very good Western scholarship on uh, comparative Indo-European mythology. Like Guanon was like a bit of a retard when it comes to that, really. He was... <laughs> He was saying that there's no such thing as the Aryans and that the Indo-Europeans never existed and all this stuff, like basically because he couldn't understand it. And he, uh, he was too focused on one way of seeing things, which was in which was to accept the legitimacy of Vedanta as Indians now portray it as Indian gurus and experts. I wonder why that is. Is that was that an early kind of virtue signaling thing where he wanted to be? Why would they do that? Yeah. I mean, I totally agree. I would call myself perennialist as well, but yeah, that's uh, I didn't even think about that. How much? Yeah, they were they, they were more focused on the East and then where they could have been in their own records of their of their own past. Yeah, they're very, they're very anti. They claim to be anti-Orientalist because they they say that the Orientalism was like a kind of Western misunderstanding of the East, uh, mm-hmm. and I can understand that. But then they also had like, um, and they had a dis- they were critical, and perhaps it was right. If, you were, if, I was writing, if I was writing in the 1920s, I might have thought the same way. Like Western scholarship was too empirical and didn't value the Eastern traditions on their own merits. And that was probably a valid thing for him to say. But in doing so, he himself devalued the, the, the empirical, you know, the, the results that empirical study gets in academia. And mm-hmm. things like comparative linguistics is... Undeniable, you know, it's a proper way of understanding the way words change. It's a, a, a systemic, a systematic process that can is falsifiable and can be like you can show the process and you can argue about it and improve it. That works. That works at getting to understand how things actually occur, um, mm-hmm. and the same with genetic science, or whatever. So, whatever yeah. you think about how materialistic the West has become, which is a valid argument that they made. You can't just do away with what's obviously a very effective and powerful and useful tool that the West have created with modern yeah. science and, mod- and modern uh, academia. And and, uh, and and those things are all being un- under fire as well from the left anyway. But um, right. and maybe it was virtue signaling, but I don't think there was much to benefit for virtue signaling being at, at that stage when he was living as a you know, French. Well, I suppose the, the, the outside can always seem more exotic sometimes or more. I don't know. It, mm. Yeah. But who knows why? But yeah. So, but they wouldn't have had the um, the some of the knowledge that you are have are able to get your hands on now regarding Indo um, Indo Europeanism and the language and the. Well, a lot of the things I think about Indo Europeans are just what all normal academics thought back in the 1920s. So, Guanon was kind of like a rebel by saying, "No, no, there was no such thing." Now, like all the, you know, now the you know it's changed around a bit. So, well, we'll over the 20th century, I'm from. Even in the 1960s, I think most a significant amount of historians and archaeologists would agree the Indo-Europeans existed and they expanded out of the step. 
and the Anglo-Saxons invaded uh, Britain and Germanized uh, the southern part of it. Uh, but uh, that then, but these kind of invasion narratives, Anglo-Saxon and the European Aryan, they all became less popular this, over the course of 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, to the point where I, when I was at uni, uh, when I was doing my master's in 2011, I was like really strongly told not to compare Anglo-Saxon horse burial techniques to Indian ones because there's no connection. And that, that whole Indo-European connection thing is just just completely a bit out far out there. You know, it's a bit like a bit wacky. Uh, right. and, and then like four years later, Hark and colleagues released Massive Migration from the Steppe as a source for uh, Indo-European languages, uh, which is a revolutionary paper that basically showed actually that happened. And, you know, since then, there's been loads of genetic, what's called the genomic revolution. There's been like loads of uh, gene, genome-wide uh, studies where they look at lot, lots of genes from uh, ancient skeletons and they can prove things quite conclusively. Um, mm -hmm. And things like the Anglo-Saxon invasion definitely did happen. The Bell Beaker invasion definitely did happen. The Aryan invasion definitely did happen. The Indo-European expansion from the steppes or the Kurgan theory definitely did happen. So these things uh, are all were all existed in Guanan's time as ideas, but there there was arguably less evidence, or there was less evidence. And and what about the language? Was, did they have did they have the language evidence that you have now? Um, yeah, linguistics was. I mean, linguistics is uh, the methods were all in place then. I think the the main development, the only main massive development in the in study of Indo-European languages was laryngeal theory. And I can't remember when that was invented, but at first laryngeal theory tried to explain some of the sound changes in Indo-European by saying like there was a, a laryngeal vowel sound that we none of the languages have now, which is why they diverge into all these different vowels. And then that was basically proven when they discovered Hittite uh, they discovered the Hittite language and deciphered its tablets. It was like written on Sumerian style uh, cuneiform clay tablets in, in Anatolia, um, mm -hmm. but it wasn't that it wasn't Sumerian. And when they translated the language and understood it, they're like, this is in the European. Like, it's word for water was basically water. Uh, and it's and they're, they're like, this is the Hittites from the Bible. They figured it out that they were in the European and they have laryngeals in their vowels. So that <laughs> kind of um, really I can't remember when that happened. I can Google it now, but uh, no, that's okay. It's all right. Yeah, there's a lot, of, there's a lot, yeah, there's a lot of details to it just already, but yeah. Yeah. So the only people that we don't know so much about, I think, I mean, maybe we do more. I mean, this would be great to ask you anyways, is the people that were there that they, that the, that the Inyo Aryans came in and uh, got rid of the people who build Newgrange and Stonehenge and that. I mean, what's known oh, about them, right. according to you I, at least. Okay, I, I wouldn't call the Indo-Europeans who came to Britain and Ireland Indo-Aryans, personally. I, that, oh, that, that phrase, I, I would use the term Indo-Aryan only to refer to the Indo-Europeans who invaded India. Oh, um, right. Okay. Okay. But, that, that's their, but they're very closely related to the ones who invaded, invaded Ireland and Britain. They're pretty yeah. much you know, the same kind of race. But uh, mm -hmm. yeah, the ones who invaded... Um, Ireland and, and took over Newgrange. What did you ask me about them? Sorry. Well, what's no what is known about them? It's you know the Bellbeaker, the Bellbeaker people. You. Yeah, yeah, the Bellbeaker people um pushed into Britain and Ireland over the course of uh two hundred years. They sort of really replaced about 
for most part, 90% of the population. Um, and there are some exceptions. They've now published recently, it's a really interesting study I just shared today on my Telegram, that places like Orkney somehow didn't, was spared. So there was a big, um, the Orkney Islands had um, a very similar tomb culture to Newgrange. So similar, in fact, that it's thought that actually it was cop it was a copy of Newgrange. So like the tomb of Mice Ho on the Orkney Isles is probably like a, a cheap knockoff version of Newgrange. So the Boyne Valley has these big Neolithic tombs all along yeah. it, like Knauth, yeah. Alf, and um, Newgrange. Yeah. And um, they... Uh, they were in communication with the people in Orkney. And when most of Ireland and Britain had been replaced by Belbeaker folk, Orkney preserved a Neolithic culture for longer. And they started taking Belbeaker women and breeding with the women. And so that the, the, Ork, the Orcadians preserved the, the male lineages of the original tomb builders, the megalith builders of the Orkneys, which is not <laughs> what happened elsewhere. Um, so but, is that the only surviving is that the only surviving genetic uh, strain of them then? I didn't say they survived to this day. I just said it survived past the invasion oh, of the Belbeaker for for a few this is it survived at least um I don't know how long it's they survived but they survived for uh quite a quite a while um before they eventually integrated with the rest of Scotland, you know, just mixing with right. the rest of the Scotland. And Scotland right. is very uh, Indo-European in in blood, so it's not at all like the Neolithic inhabitants of scotland uh and then also Or orkney got like 50 percent population replaced in the viking era as well because the vikings basically took it over and it even spoke i think they even spoke norse in 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 uh, orkney for quite a long time it was owned by the the norwegians until the middle ages i don't think it was given to the king of scotland until the middle ages like so a long time after the viking era it remained under norwegian control anyway um so let me just uh, ask this because I'm not even sure of this. So the people that they are trying to say now that are like dark skinned and blue eyed, like the what's his name, Cheddarman and all this, that the documentaries say, are they were they are they saying this of Belvicker people or the people that they supplanted? That's, I'm not even sure of this. Neither. The, the, that's neither. A, a, that's a third race that preceded the megalith builders. Oh. That uh, Cheddarman is in some Cheddar is in Somerset, by the way. Cheddar Gorge is in the West Country. That's right. another West Country thing. Um, but Cheddar Man, his race of people called Western hunter-gatherers, they lived all over Britain, all over Ireland, all over Western Europe, Portugal, Spain, Italy, France, and that, most of Central Europe. Uh, but there was in a different race of hunter-gatherers in Eastern Europe. Uh, and um, today we have more DNA from the Eastern European hunter-gatherers of the Mesolithic than the Western hunter-gatherers. But right. um, And the reason for that is because the... Uh, 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 a, th a people from Anatolia came uh, and brought agriculture into Europe uh, at the start of the Neolithics. And they crossed, you know, they spread from Southeast Europe, you know, Greece, and then upwards, and then into Britain and Ireland. Like the, uh, golden, age, the golden Age of Saturn. Sounds Is that like what it was? Well, so you're talking about eight, nine, about 8,000 years ago, it starts, and they, and they, they have all this, they, they have this. Neolithic era where Britain, uh, Europe is mostly inhabited by these people of Anatolian descent um, mm -hmm. up until the European, Indo Europeans come and just completely wipe a lot of them out, at least in the north of Europe. Um, right. So, the, so the, the people who built the megaliths are the one, the people of Anatolian descent. 
mainly, right. mainly Anatolian right. descent, with a little bit of blood also from the cheddar men who were there before the the right. the, 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 the primitive hunter gatherers. Um, and uh, actually, the, the the tomb of New Grange that you in Ireland you mentioned when they did mm -hmm. DNA tests on it, they found like he was different from the people he ruled over the king genetically and right. he was related to another bloke from a, a, on all the other side of i think in county sligo um another tomb where his relative was in that tomb and he was also he, they were different in in his first they were inbred and mm -hmm. secondly i read your article about this i remember this yeah yeah the, secondly they also had the physical characteristics preserved from the hunter-gatherers who they who they replaced so it seems like something weird happened where like the cheddar men who the blue, who all had blue eyes um yeah. had uh, and 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 swarthier skin than than modern europeans have yeah somehow like they became an elite among the people who replaced them uh or or, or their or their character their physical characteristics were associated with the elites who right. replace it because uh, it's, it, and we don't know why that is because it's very strange. It's, yeah. it's it's incredibly fascinating, all of it. And so I've, I've really picked your brain about that. That's uh, stuff I personally wanted to know. Uh, we've gone off the topic of West Country a little bit though. But when I asked you about your Anglo-Saxon speciality, I was wondering. You said for because I don't know this either that when the so the Saxons they stopped shy of going to Cornwall. Is that true when they invaded? Or did they never they went to Cornwall? Yeah, but the, I think that Anglo-Saxon DNA is probably in Cornwall to some extent. Uh, mm -hmm but not very much and not from directly from Anglo-Saxons. Like uh, the way that the invasion happened, it seems like there was about 80% re replacement, but in the east of England, only in the east of England. And yeah. then gradually everyone just mixed together. And that, and that, so that DNA sort of just diffused across into Scotland and into Cornwall. Uh, so the, the closer to the east of England that you are, the more, ancestrally the more anglo-saxon dna you have but the average today of english people is only around 40 percent uh anglo-saxon and the rest is from the pre-anglo-saxon britons um right but they the cornwall being so far away it had the least and also it had that special boundary that language creates because they did preserve for a long time the cornish language but yeah. now it's not really spoken it's not spoken natively at all it's it's put on signs and things public signs but that's more of a cultural and my uncle tries tries now and then. <laughs> he's probably yeah. forgotten multiple, but he's very Mr. Cornwall. Uh, but yeah, actually, when I did my DNA test too, I was solid. I'm I'm half Irish and half Cornish, and I'm my, I solidly all the way back in history was this spot, like just south of Devon, North Cornwall. That's where I was from. Whatever, whatever that the herd side of the family, and the the name Arthur was in the lineage going way back to oh, my cool. actually my grandfather's name was Kingsley Arthur Hurd, which is excellent, really. That's a really great name. <laughs> Yeah, 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 but um, yeah. So they the Saxons did, in, they took over Devon. So we, I yeah. was when I first said this to you, I was going to ask you. So let's talk about the Pixies, and you said you don't think Pixies, or how you properly pronounce it, I'm not sure, is even a uh, Celtic, corn Cornish origin word. And you said some very interesting things. If you want to, well, talk about it's, that. it's hard to know for sure. Um, no one knows basically. No one can tell you for sure that piss piss in Devon they say pisky. And I think in Cornwall they pixie, so piskies or pixies, uh, but it's kind of like um, it may well have been a word that was applied to something that of pagan origin that Celtic Christians believed in, like as a little sprite. Yeah. It was just because they convert to Christianity doesn't mean they stop believing in little sprites and what have you. But uh, the 
that no one actually can understand any Celtic word or root that it could come from, and it's not mentioned in any, you know, of the older pagan sources. So it, it and it does have a, a sim in Swedish, very far away, very un Celtic. They have a word that's something like puski, which meant a kind of fairy. So it's mm -hmm. very similar. So some people have said maybe that would be the origin, but there's no evident proof of that, except the two words sound the same and refer to a similar thing. Puck, there's like a similar puck as well has been proposed as a cognate. So in in Ireland, that's mainly in Ireland, the word pukan, uh, the pukan. Puka, yeah, the ghost, yeah. yeah. Like a horse monster. Yeah. <laughs> it's widely agreed that this pukan is cognate with what uh, Shakespeare wrote about uh, Puck, mm -hmm. who is portrayed by Shakespeare as a very like sort of classical Greek pagan thing. Is this but a Midsummer Night's Dream or something, is it? Yeah. So, yeah. but presumably it was influenced by indigenous English paganism of some kind. But the word Puck is probably Anglo-Saxon in origin. Mm -hmm. So right. whatever, the Irish probably applied it the word, the you know, the Irish were occupied by England, English speakers, so they they used English words to refer to their own things. So mm -hmm. the, the the pukan is probably an Irish Celtic thing of mythology, but the word pukan is not probably not likely to be Irish. Um, it's probably not, and it, that and that would and it's quite possible pukan is related to pixie, so it might be an Anglo-Saxon word, but it's not in Anglo-Saxon either. Uh, so <laughs> it's hard to say for sure. But yeah, yeah the, the the thing is like there are these great survivals of really pagan customs in the West Country, uh, mm -hmm. and people assume because the West Country is where Celtic language survived for longer than the rest of England, that these must be Celtic um, traditions. One such right. is the but but they're not they're not Celtic traditions. They're definitely not. That that's something like one of them is. Um, the maypole, uh, the maypole oh, really? tradition. Okay. And maypoles are here, very, very widespread uh, in Devon and Cornwall and um, Somerset. They were, they survived. But maypoles have, I mean, they have maypole in Germany. It's called a maybaum. means maypole. It's literally a German, <laughs> it's in Germany. And in Ireland, they never had maypoles until the British introduced them. And instead, the Irish had a maybush. So there was a similar Celtic tradition with a, a bush, which they'd run around with, but it was so raucous and they used to beat the shit out of each other with this bush and stuff. I, it's, there's a lot of, uh, lot of written about it in the... Um, I, I, I learned a lot about it from uh, Johnny Dillon's podcast. Uh, uh, he, he had lots of yeah. uh, inf Good interesting information about it. But the, yeah. the, the British uh, introduced the Maypole in an effort to sort of civilise the Irish because they considered the May bush too raucous. Whereas the maypole was a more calm and civilized thing, so it, that shows you that if it would, the you know the pole is definitely not a Celtic thing. It was yeah. something that the English spread about, and so people in in the West Country sometimes because this is quite obviously pagan thing, and it's in the Wicker Man, they skip around it and they want to call it Celtic, but it's not Celtic. It's it's Germanic, and the other mm. one is wassailing, which has three different forms. Uh, wassail can mean like a drink of hot cider and the, yeah. all of West country, by the way, is cider country. So the best cider in Europe generally come from this cider belt, which go, which is the same latitude, like including the Southwest of England. Like, so that's Devon, Somerset and Cornwall and Dorset 
but also the northwest of France with Brittany and then Normandy and Belgium. All these regions produce good cider. Uh, so the the wassail is a, is a hot cider drink, but it's also a song, which is like caroling, like a Christmas carol, but uh, yeah. it, it celebrated uh, later in January at the old date of Christmas, a pagan date of Yule, in fact. And um, the word wassail comes from the Anglo-Saxon wassthuhau, which means good health, have good health. And the old uh, Geoffrey of Monmouth, the medieval Welsh chronicler, wrote about the Anglo-Saxon invasion. And he claims like that Hengus and Horsa, who are actually gods, introduced this term wassail to the Celts and taught them to say wassail when it was when Rowena, the daughter of the Celtic chief, um, that they were drinking and, he, and they said, in our culture, you say wassail when you do this. So we know for sure it's an Anglo-Saxon thing. Now, the other kind of wassailing thing besides caroling, which is like when it's called, when you do it, wassailing, you, you knock on the door and you sing and demand alcohol. But there's another more pagan version of it, which is done here in this part of the country I live in, in Devon, not in Cornwall. And then they go to the orchard uh, around the 14th of January, 13th of January or something like that. And then they sing to the trees, the apple trees, uh, and pour libations of cider on them and ask them to make more apples next summer so that they'll have more cider next winter. Mm. And um, they hang decorations on the trees and they fire nowadays it probably didn't happen originally they fire guns into the air to scare away evil spirits that would harm the trees <laughs> and uh, it's all obviously of pagan origin like singing to and talking to trees and yeah here here around um it's not in january it's like the week after christmas or something i can't even remember now i went to it uh once they have the ran of the wren and they sort of do Irish, something yeah, yeah yeah and yeah. Our, yeah and they um sing you, you're supposed to go around and sing outside someone's door until they bring you out some booze and yeah, go around singing door to door. <laughs> so it's the same, I guess. And they dress in funny costumes. And yeah, I mean, that's the or pretty much all the true customs of the British Isles. Can If you go back to their origin and many parts of other parts of Europe as well, if you go back to their earliest origin, it seems to always be just a gang of young men, often armed, knocking on people's door, demanding alcohol or, <laughs> or uh, food or women. Uh, and, and otherwise they're going to have threat of violence and that's the origin of trick-or-treating <laughs> that's the origin of christmas caroling that's the yeah. origin they used to have a, a, an easter thing called um a pace egging which was the same thing you go around demanding eggs or something it's just it's always just an excuse for mobs of young lads to go and intimidate people really and, exactly. and the wren boy the wren boys you described they used to threaten to bury a wren uh, the smallest bird of the british Isles, bury a wren in the ground on the property if you didn't give them what they asked for and that would curse the land and that probably is celtic because the wren is a really important bird in celtic myth like it's the king of birds they say uh, because mm. it, it, it outwitted an eagle in this myth so it's a beautiful beautiful little bird yeah it's lovely but it's illegal to do that hunting the, the irish used to hunt the wren on, on st stephen's day the day after christmas um mm. uh, i don't think it's legal to do that because uh, Birds are protected species. Yeah. Yeah, and you when you were saying before about the pixies, pixies, uh, and it's the similarity to the puka that reminds me of the, like all that. Even here, the idea of the fairies is not. It's more modern. The idea that there's a cute little guy that gets you the gold or whatever. It's more that yeah. they were these ghostly remnant uh, ancestral people. And and here especially, I don't know if it is over there so much. There was the the doppelganger was a big thing. Or they would replace you with somebody who wasn't you 
and the there's a lot of stories. Mm-hmm. I read, I read, I went to the folklore collection at UCD there, and I read, I looked up some of them. It was absolutely amazing how much there was, and the stories of them. Like it wasn't just babies; it'd be a- adults as well. Someone could just get replaced. So they, and you know, it would just be if you, and it was all the way the way you did it. I don't remember it now. Like the way it would happen and what you would have to do was fascinating. I wish I, I wish I could pull it out of hand in my brain, but I can't. But it was a big thing. The doppelganger is that was that as well in your. Elsewhere? No, the the, the the concern the Irish have with uh, changeling, changeling, I should say, sorry, changeling, not double, yeah. yeah changelings is very much an Irish thing. However, yeah. there is a Cornish fear of changelings as well, because I know that I did it actually. There's a ritual associated with a Neolithic monument in Cornwall called Menantol, um, which is a, a Neolithic stone with a hole in it. And you right. pass, you adults crawl through it as a cure for rheumatism and have done for a long time, but I made a whole documentary on this called um, Holy Holes. Um, and right. I passed my son through it, but they used to pass children through it allegedly to make sure it wasn't a changeling because apparently yeah. if it was a changeling, then it would be replaced with the real one. If you, if you passed it through the hole, passed the child through the hole head first. So I did that just to make sure. And also just in case any rheumatism afflicted. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, the word fairy is a... It, adopted from French in the Middle Ages. And it, it comes to be used in the Celtic parts of Britain to refer to what they formerly called the she, which are like, were originally a sort of supernatural entities of various sorts. Are were they giants or something? It's the she, isn't there? Is that the... Oh, okay, I, I, I recall that one, but yeah, go on, sorry. The she, like, is the, for example, banshee is, just yeah. mean, ban is in Gaelic woman, I think. So banshee means the the woman she, and she originally means a barrow, a burial mound. So it refers, mm. it means like the people, the she are the people of the burial mounds in their original conception. So that means they're like spirits of the dead, basically, the, the ancient dead. Um, and, and that became gradually over time, like the word fairy was applied there. Whereas in Britain, uh, whereas in the Germanic parts of Britain, the word fairy was used to replace the word elf or elves, like which we had from um, English folklore. So... Uh, oh, elf was like, I thought elf was even a sort of a Viking origin word, is it not? Or am I wrong? Uh, yeah, the word elf uh, exists in both in Old English and Anglo um, and Old Norse. So... Uh, it, Alfar in Old Norse and Ulfa in Old English. So mm-hmm. the it's a it's a common to all Germanic peoples. Uh, so uh, the and the elf law was in England, and then uh, the she were in in the Gaelic parts of the country. And then the term fairy in the Middle Ages was a blanket term for all of them. So mm-hmm. when fairy law can sometimes refer to ancient Celtic stuff and sometimes refer to ancient Germanic stuff from the British Isles. But you can, right. but both of them. I think my own argument is that both uh, the she and the elves uh, are their respectively uh, ancestral related to ancestor cults, and I've argued that in my videos at length, like showing all the evidence of how elves can include in Norse in the Viking sources. They include some elves as as ancestors, as they call someone who dies became an elf. So, or, or and they also say that you know. They, talk, they, they connect elves to the dead and to barrows. So bar- barrow is the British term for a burial man, by the way. So if they're connecting elves to barrows and the, gal- the gales are connecting the she to barrows and then they both all get called fairies, you can see they're conflating them. And they were originally, as you say, like sp- ancient spirits of the land who were probably the people who originally lived on the land. 
And then they, over time, get reinvented as these little people uh, with little bug wings or something. <laughs> I think that's a lot to do with the Victorian children's yeah. books. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah, which are quite yeah. lovely children's books in their own right, but they've kind of distorted what we think of an elf or a fairy actually is. Yeah, I can tell you, I can tell you, I can't remember the details, but I can just tell you that the stories I read of the changeling uh, accounts were actually harrowing. And <laughs> it was like very deeply frightening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's the same, it's the same in England with el elves. They were terrified of them. And elf mm. bolts were things that would kill you, like invisible missiles that give you diseases and your cow diseases. So you're, like, yeah, you know, yeah. your cow will not create milk. Your child will starve this winter you will suddenly be struck down by an unknown disease. That's elves, and you've angered them somehow. And there's 10th century charms in Anglo-Saxon medicine books explaining how to heal yourself from the effects of elves. And alfseden means like to be under the influence of elves, to be sick from elves. So all the, like the fear of in the British Isles of these ancestral spirits was very, very serious. These were like hor 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 horrific. Now, whether they were originally horrific in pagan times, maybe they, became, they weren't so much. And it's like in Christianity, they survived, but they became more and more scary as they were. It seemed like they could maybe go either way. Like they were very powerful, maybe mostly mischievous and malevolent. But then there was some good ones, too. Like there's a lot of those accounts of the elf prince, which Shakespeare referred to as Oberon, which I always think of in my mind. Like when I'm in the woods, I think of Oberon, uh, who is also was an Aberyk. I don't know how to pronounce the other versions of his name. There's like Germanic and all different versions of the story of like an elf prince who lives in the woods. Mm. And he's generally, he sort of helps. There's even crusader stories of how he helps crusaders, even though he's very pagan. Yeah, um, that sounds, that sounds very interesting. Yeah. But I mean, even in the pagan, the more like, you know, the sources set in pagan times, they say mm. that you had to give sacrifices to the elves, just like the gods. And in the yeah. Anglo-Saxon sources, the gods are called Issa and they're invoked in, together with the elves. So it's Isa, Ok, Elva, So the gods and the elves together. So, and they're, 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 they're not as high as the gods, but they're like, they're up there and they're, mm. and you definitely make sacrifices to them just like you do to gods. So I think yeah. in my opinion, they're probably analogous to the, the Greek daimonos, uh, so, or, you know, something like the spirits that are uh, in between the, the divine hierarchy between the mortal and the divine um so yeah they're, they're not evil but they're definitely to be feared and revered and after the sacrifices were sort of you know banned by the church i think that uh, these entities were just sort of seen as being demonic and fearful things that you couldn't appease or or that it was evil to appease so you can only fear them or uh so yeah there was, there was another one you Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, no, uh, go on. I don't want to, I didn't mean oh, to. No, it's okay. I was just saying there was also a, an explicit connection of elves to Odin because when a Christian in, um, I think it's Auster Farasvisser says, uh, interrupts a sacrifice to elves, um, the sacrificer says to the Christian, you can't come in here. Um, you know, we're doing a sacrifice to the elves and we fear Odin's wrath. So for some reason, Odin was concerned that you make sacrifices to the elves. Hmm. Wow. It's also just excellent and amazing. I was going to say, just because you mentioned it when I when I brought up the Pixies uh, before, uh, when I was just chatting with you on Telegram there, the um, you mentioned something I didn't know about, about Hobbs, which is like a house where the word Hobgoblin comes from. And you also brought up Larry's, the Roman version of not really uh, fairies, I guess, but the dead, I guess. 
but he said they were all related. So can you say something about that? Because that was very interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, the Romans were in Britain for a few centuries and uh, was it like more close to 400 years anyway. I can't remember the exact number, but um, they had uh, uh, this cult of the Laris and the Roman Britons, even though they didn't leave a big genetic impact, the Romans didn't like change genetically the, the natives of Britain. That's been proven in a genetic study. They definitely did change the Britons culturally. And the Britons really, the Celtic Britons really adopted Roman baths, Roman lifestyles, and Roman customs like Valaris. So we, we don't know how, I mean, to some extent, the Celtic gods and traditions were integrated with Roman ones. So we can also consider what, to what extent that the Roman cult of Valaris was influential on like household god worship or household spirits or ancestral spirits in Britain. And the hob um, or hobgoblin is like that. It's a kind of um, an English belief in a, in a sort of house spirit, but it's very friendly. It, it, no one's afraid of hobs in the, in the old law. It's kind of like a Scottish brownie. In, in Scotland, they have this thing called a brownie, uh, and yes. it's, it's like the English old hob. And they're also, both of them are much like in Sweden and Norway. They have nissa or, or uh, tomte nissa, and they are little little folks who represent like the original inhabitants of the farmhouse or the thing, and they're appeased with you know bowls of porridge or something. You leave out a bowl of porridge for him, and he won't go wrong. He'll make sure that your your shoes are don't wear out, and your cow keeps giving milk, that kind of thing. So yeah. it's sort of like you remember that other people lived in the house before you, and they might still be around, and that you give them a bit of food or something to. To, to appease them. So it, it's an ancient and almost perennial um, yeah. that it seems to be in different cultures yeah. of Europe. It's the very perennialist um, tradition, isn't it really? Because that's the same one you find in Shinto and everywhere else is the idea of leaving out a bit of food. And mm. it's just, it was there right up so, you know, it's the only, it's only been done away with in very, very recently, I guess, Christianity and Islam and that stopped all that. Uh, yeah, everybody. but, but even yeah, not always, always because I, I was in Sumatra uh, an Islamic island, of course, and I found these customs surviving among the tribal, the Batak people, and they were, they have like um, beliefs in, in house spirits and ancestor spirits, and they leave food for them and stuff. And some of them are ostensibly Muslim, but I mean that it's not, it's not taken a hundred percent. It's like we, like you know, Christianity came to the British Isles, but people carried on believing in. You know, fairies or whatever. The, you know, first they called them, the, they carried on calling them elves and she, and then later they renamed them all fairies and they carried on believing them and writing about them right into modern times. And in Sweden and Norway, they, they still give porridge to their, to the, to Nissa. Some of the old, old people still do that. Not in the, I'm not talking about like neo pagans, I mean like rustic types in the countryside. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's really survival. They really think I oh, better, better leave some. I mean, Iceland, they, they, they they're concerned apparently. In, with where they build roads in case they build it over where the dwarves live. So well, they did, they did that here. They had to divert a road because it was an old fairy tree, a hawthorn. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, they did it somewhere a couple of, a few years ago. And I know, I, I mean, I leave out a little something uh, whenever I can as well. But there's even, I think they, I don't know, we can't know for sure how it works, but like the extent of your, I guess you're not a sacrifice, but your um, giving um, maybe depending on what you're hoping for 
can be, and depending on how much you want the thing, I don't know if that has any relevance because, but I just think of a, um, there's a famous, there was a, there was a, there's a golden boat thing. Um, quite amazing. I forget exactly what it's called, but it's like gold and it was found in a lake here and they surmise it was a Celtic king or something. This was his offering to the gods for something he wanted. It was just like a big hoard of gold, <laughs> a big giant golden boat. Oh yeah, I made. saw that in the museum in, in Dublin. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's amazing, yeah. that little golden boat. So he went out and threw it in the lake. Supposedly. That's, a, that's what they say. Yeah, so. water offerings are really interesting and they're also um, I, they're definitely associated at first with the spread of the Celtic languages. So in Britain, the, the beaker folk uh, when they who first came to Britain and Ireland didn't make water offerings, but then during the Bronze Age, late Bronze Age, they start doing that. And that is thought to be a sign that a new culture is coming in that does make water offerings. The Celts did make offerings to water, but the German Germanic cultures also did. So Anglo-Saxon, but they came later. So in the, they probably, I think Germanic cultures were influenced by Celtic continental culture. So that's why there's a lot of right. parallels also. But or they have a they they come from the same part of Europe, like Germany. You know, a lot of the Celtic heartland is in Germany, and a lot of the Germanic heartland is in Germany. So there's going to be some influence, cross influence there. But um, the offering to the, the the to bogs is older than that. But I'm not. But offering to like lakes and rivers specifically. That it seems to be something that comes around in the late Bronze Age and goes on through the Iron Age with Celtic and uh, Germanic people, and um, it's very interesting because we have like some sources give us clues on what's going on. Like the the, the Norse sources talk about like river, rivers of spears and rivers of weapons, and it does seem to be like that water itself is connected, seen as like a because they envisage the underworld as a place full of rivers and water, a yeah. cold place. Uh, it seems that water is seen as like a liminal space that connects you to the world of the dead. So they might be giving to people in the other world by giving to the water in, uh, in that sense. And it always makes me, whenever I see these like Germanic burial, uh, sword offerings, like the Thames Scramasax, which I have a copy of here somewhere. Uh, oh yeah, here we are. This thing, this was found in the Thames. It's a, a, a seax, an Anglo-Saxon seax with yeah, runes, great. Anglo-Saxon runes inscribed. They found it in London, so it was offered to the to the to the River Thames for some reason. But it reminds mm. me of the Celtic heroes' legends, uh, Arthur and the Lady of the Lake, and you know the sword yeah. Excalibur coming out of the water. It yeah. just, uh, I, I think that 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 imagery of the sword um, in the water has some very ancient associations um, yeah. with the people in Britain. Yeah, no, that's that's great. Yeah, no, I just yeah, and I wonder like how much if you're leaving something if it's if it matters. Like I often think it should be something that like as a practical, say, matter of practicing paganism, should it be something that you kind of want that you're sort of sacrificing in a way, or just many people say just leave food that as in as in they're hungry, and that's good. That's a a sign of respect enough, and maybe maybe it's both a bit. I don't know. So you're saying that we that you you give something that you want. I feel like I'm. I feel like it's something. If I have some food that I really want, I will. I will deny it myself. Some little thing, like some stupid treat mm -hmm. or something, and mm -hmm. leave it as an offering. And I feel like that's. I, I don't know. That's just... I think that I, I always tell people that when it comes to offerings in, in the context of a right uh, to a god, then you. It's all about value. So 
um, you have to give you have to offer something that has value. The reason they sacrifice cows and things is because those were valuable. Um, mm. So when you give up something of value, then you're you're making a sacrifice. Um, mm. But when it comes to like offering food to the dead, uh, I think that like there's such a convention with porridge for some reason in several cultures, and the Slavs do that too. In their version of Halloween, they put porridge on graves and stuff. So mm. I I always think porridge is good. The, de- the Greeks and Romans had an association with beans. So they, right. the, the Orphic mystery cults, there was even prohibitions against eating beans because of this association with the dead. So they always gave beans as an offering to the dead and also uh, cakes sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. Cakes, they buried cakes, which is interesting because in one episode of The Sopranos, one of them has a, an episode when his wife dies and he buries a cake in her grave. And I thought, are they referencing the Roman pagan tradition of burying cakes? Uh, um, but, yeah, maybe. But maybe uh, yeah. On, yeah. No, that's, but in my that's... opinion, porridge is probably a suitable offering for the dead because that's what people okay, seem to have always done. Right. But uh, well, yeah. you know, I, I yeah, I mean, that's just something I. You never know. Like you're recreating something, I sort of follow my instincts, I guess, a lot of the time. But yeah, that's that's good to know. If you know the person who's dead and you know they didn't like porridge, then maybe <laughs> maybe uh, it's not appropriate anymore. But if it's like a a, a, a generalized offering to ancestor spirits, um, maybe it's all right. But yeah, I do think you're right about the principle of value. Like you want it, you're giving up something you value. That's important because that's ba- the basis of sacrifice. And that's uh-huh. like that's perennial too. Like the potlatch of potlatch or however you say it, the Native American cultures, where they just compete to smash up all their possessions and whichever chief smashes up most of his possessions is the winner. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. Give away or... There's something to it anyways. I don't know. That's and that's what that's what evolved into the I think the Christian idea of sacrifice, but they don't really perform a material sacrifice. They I don't know. I don't even I I don't I don't know what they do. They do they've changed everything around. So I wanted to say quickly about the edict we talked about where the, the uh, which one, one of the abbots or something, where do I have it here? He wrote, he was at complaining about Devon and Cornwall being a hotspot of paganism and how they wanted to put they, to put an end to it. Where is it now? I have it here. Da, da, da. Uh, I think I got confused because you asked me about, um, uh, uh, you, you mentioned a couple of, um, of uh, edicts uh, and uh, two different things, and I one of them I didn't recognize, and it referred to some French thing, I think, and the oh, other, yeah. the other was um, re- I did recognize, and it didn't refer to the West Country; it referred to England in general, and specifically, it was aimed at um, uh, that was Archbishop Wolfstan, and he was that was writing sometime between 1016 and 1035, and he wrote. That you know, you you mustn't worship idols, and it will be don't equal. worship the sun and the moon or whatever. Yeah, you don't worship the sun, the moon, fire, flood, wellspring, or stones. That definitely was he was talking about not Celts. He was talking about Anglo Danes. So right. that's like Anglo Anglo Viking mixture people who were who were still because even the Anglo Saxons were pretty much all Christian by that stage. The Celts certainly were, but the um, but some of the Anglo Danes with like Viking ancestry pro- were probably still practicing some kind of heathenry in the 10 hundreds. Yeah. So um, 
he was yeah no I, I saw that I, that's the one i was going to quote is but i actually i didn't catch on that it was for all of england i thought it was still talking about devon so no, never mind it wasn't, <laughs> but, i mean that's still specifically but it might have been included i don't think he, he was actually talking about devon at all actually i really think he was talking about the northern england people in the north of england because that's right. where the viking people were i see all oh, right 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 um, so like or, what is was there like was there a lot of is like so cornwall and devon those are the two that I would think of anyways, more so, but they, and they're notoriously pagan now, but they were fully Christianized. And even though they held on to a lot of folk ways and everything else, it was, it's the same story as anywhere else. But like, the, what is your, yeah, if, if you do reason. have a theory, do you have a theory of like why your own personal theory as to why Christianity was so thoroughly overtaking apart from the ruthless, some of the, you know, why Christianity was successful. You mean, well, yeah. Why it was so all encompassingly overtaking. Uh -huh. Yeah. Like, um, I know there's a lot of. Well, I don't like to have an over, a, a theory for Christianity everywhere being successful because mm. um, it kind of like we we have now the position or the privilege of looking back at history and 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 we can have this temptation to see it all as an inevitable. I mean that that's the pagan view actually that like fate makes everything happen a certain way it has to happen that way. Um, yeah. But like we have seen that um completely different circumstances in different parts of europe led to the success of christianity and often it doesn't have anything to do with the doctrine of christianity itself it's to do with leaders and powerful movers and shakers taking advantage of allegiances here and there and and yeah you know there's so many different things going on the initial success of christianity in rome was very interesting and had a lot to do with immigration i think like um not at the time not at the time of the rise of christianity in the third century and the fourth century when it got really big over the fourth century is when it really like became the main religion but m more earlier because they've already shown that the imperial rome was basically like middle eastern like by that stage there were so many middle easterners that the average roman was mu was much more middle eastern than the average italian is now um so obviously middle eastern cults are going to be more popular when you import a bunch of middle easterners uh but then the the as for the rest of um europe in the middle ages and, and spread particularly among the barbarians that is we northerners the celts and the germans and the and the slavs and what have you different things were happening and i think it's more to do with elites trying to align themselves generally with more powerful states uh, for trade and for other, you know, reasons. Uh, and Christianity was the key to plugging into those social networks. And, and also, was it to do with also, like, since it was all it's places like here, when it was all Latin and everything, and people didn't understand that it was so much different than what they were already doing, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, no one can understand it before. The idea of religion, did if you never heard of it, then it, it's very hard to understand. Like they yeah. have actually records of like Anglo-Saxon Bede, the Venerable Bede writes about how, um, I can't remember which which Anglo-Saxon king it was. I think it was a guy up in, um, uh, well, anyway, he 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 was worshiping Jesus. He, he said, I'm gonna worship Jesus. And he got a statue of Jesus and he put it in the temple next to Odin and Thor, Woden and Thunor which are the Anglo-Saxon versions of Odin and Thor. So yeah. uh, he didn't 
stop worshiping the gods, basically. And you can see that kind of pattern everywhere where polytheism exists and Christianity is introduced. They're like, cool, right? Another god. If you prove him to me, he'll make me powerful. Then I'll add him to the pantheon. Right. Um, they didn't understand what was really being presented. And I think that the actual and Nietzsche had some good points when he was saying, I'm not a Nietzschean, but he had some good points when he was sort of arguing that the real realization of Christian, the Christian ethos was actually only achieved in quite recent history when people finally like almost as they're killing the Christian God. In fact, like where it's like this is a doctrine that completely removes you from your history. It's completely up, upends everything and and up and completely turns upside down the entire moral system of Europe, which was always about like um, the heathen morality. It's like if you are you're beautiful, you're good. If you're strong, you're good. If you're rich, that's good too. Like things that are good are evidently good and they don't need to be argued for. Like they're just it's clear. Like if someone has well, yeah. to them, if someone's lucky, then he's good. He's lucky yeah. because the gods like him and they've given him good luck. If someone's yeah. got bad luck, probably something wrong with him, probably worth avoiding. Which it's is kind of Buddhist wrong. as well, yeah. The uh, mm. the karma and stuff. But um, yeah, but there was the end of the whole paterfamilias thing where the family and the honor in the family and the bloodline and all this was very, all that was reversed. And that was very, you know, that was very real, genealogically real. <laughs> that had a, you know, material foundation, let's say. Yeah, he did say, I mean, they did say honor your mother and father in the Bible, but they also say, I teach you to hate the world. And like, once well, no, you you're right. You're right, though. It didn't really, like, and Nietzsche was right that it didn't really materialize into its final form until quite recently. And before that, it was not so, I mean, in, in the in the feudal age and that, it really wasn't so, I mean, so different. You changed the name of the god, of the gods, mm -hmm. but they were still like witches and dragons and everything. And it was, they were still pretty like that. They were very much, you know, like even the Arthurian legends and everything, and like he's doing a lot of harsh things, <laughs> and he's getting not, gaining power. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, they're yeah. still like heroes charging around on horses. They're invading anyone they don't like and killing, <laughs> slaughtering people and raping people and stuff. Like the Bible yeah. tells them not to do it. So afterwards, they say their prayers and they say they ask for redemption. They go to the priests. Priests, you know, tells them this many Hail Marys, and then you can go out and kill again. Yeah, <laughs> really. Didn't really take in the way it has now, even so though maybe, like, maybe religion then it can be thought of like like with Spengler's theory like of civilizations that when when it reaches its sort of zenith then it's kind of over. So if Christianity becomes fully realized, that's actually when it's also going to fade away or change into something else, which is sort of has or is. That's interesting. Yeah, maybe that's very perennial. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I have to give that some consideration. I hadn't thought of it. Yeah, it's like yeah. Could be true, but because uh, as, as like people of pagan mind, if we do believe in fate, then Christianity was inevitable, and that's fine. But maybe I think as time is fading or changing, anyway, it's just to the new thing, whatever's going to be, or new things probably. And uh, yeah, that's what I would say about it, anyways. But um, yeah, I think I've kept you for quite a while. We're at oh, must be a good couple hours almost. I'm not sure, but I'll uh. I don't know what else did we have. Was there anything else we we're going to say about the West Country we didn't we didn't get into? I mean, it's a beautiful I, place. It's yeah. I, I think that that it's really scenic and beautiful, and that's why people give it these mythic associations and they want to connect it to paganism. It's because it's it's really like quite lovely. There's you know misty moors and beautiful beaches and cliffs and things. So 
it is it, natural to associate it with these kind of th these things like something yeah, it's wild yeah the coastline is yeah. the most wildest coastline more so than the west of ireland the 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 cornwall and the, i imagine devon it's quite similar to the west of ireland western ireland cliffs i think i've never been to the west of ireland but i've seen the picture it's like the similar. same green very very green fields very very imposing cliffs and then the the big chart waves of the atlantic it's the same weather as well rainy it's similar, but I honestly think the coast, some of the coastline I saw in Cornwall was even wilder, like just raging waves. Maybe it's just the time I was there. I don't know. And like some of the cliffs mm. were just yeah, really the, there can be some big waves. Lots of surfers there. There's a big surfer culture around here. Yeah, you ever go or what? I used to surf as a, a lad. My my brother in Cornwall is a surfer still. I haven't surfed so much as an adult. I tried. Your brother, a bit. Who's, uh, your brother who's deep frying the pasties is that the one or? Yeah, he's in the news. He, he's in the Cornish news. He's upset the Cornish because. <laughs> We have Scottish ancestry that compels us to deep fry things. And uh, he decided to deep fry a pasty and uh, it made the news because Cornish people don't like people messing with their pasties, which is their national dish, I guess. Oh, they wouldn't like that, no, no. They no. didn't like it at all, yeah. but uh, he, he may have started, it's called a pasty crunch. Oh, I say it's delicious. It yeah. probably is pretty good. That, yeah, you'll uh, yeah. be a millionaire with it. If he did it anywhere but normal, he'd be, he'd be. He didn't patent it, so I don't think he can but, uh, okay. make any money on it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. No, that's uh, that's great. That's great. And uh, yeah, Cornwall, Devon. I love it. I love that area. I can't wait to go back sometime. I, I will eventually. My well, let is, me know uh, when you're here. Uh, I'll, I'll show you around some of Devon. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, I will for sure. I mean, in fact, I was going to meet you that time, and then right before the COVID, I had to cancel the whole holiday and. Right, that's right. When the the COVID struck, that's the last time I made an attempt to go. But yeah, it has to it has to be done soon. And it's a great part of the world to live in. You're very lucky. And yeah, I mean, yeah. you chose it. You knew what you were doing full well. Yes, yeah. <laughs> one of the better better corners to be. But uh, yeah, thanks very much, uh, Thomas. No, it's been great that. speaking to you. Cheers, yeah. Brendan. Lovely to talk to you, and I'll talk to you again soon. See ya. Ciao.